0: Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Well, welcome back. Uh, We are in Acts chapter 20. I apologize for missing last week. Uh, I was in Florida. But we are back on track today, so we are in Acts chapter 20 today. And the screen says verses 1 through 12, but we're only going to read 1 through 6 today. And then we're going to take a bit of an excursion away from the book of Acts today and you'll see why we're going to do that in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 20 and let's go ahead and read through the first six verses. After the uproar ceased, what's the uproar? Well, the uproar, of course, is where we left off the last time we were together two weeks ago and that was the great riot that occurred in Ephesus. We said that as Paul went out and he began to preach the gospel, and people's lives were changed, Uh, that affected the way that they spent their money, spent their time, spent their energy, but also spent their money. And when it began to affect the way they spent their money, that began to affect the economy. And there's nothing that so gets the attention of the civic leaders like an economy, Uh, particularly an economy that is changing in a very dramatic way. And that's what was happening here. We're told that A big business there in Ephesus were these shrines or these tiny little idols that were made that were dedicated to uh, Artemis or to Diana, the goddess of the hunt. This was big business in the ancient world. And we're told that as people more and more were converted to the Christian faith, they began to abandon these pagan practices. And the silversmiths began to suffer as a consequence, suffer financially, that is. And so they began to speak abusively against the Apostle Paul. A riot occurred in the city and we're told that uh, there was great confusion. Now when we ended we said that Paul was ultimately vindicated. Uh, He was dragged before the civic officials and it was determined that he had not broken any Roman laws and so on this particular occasion, this wasn't always the case for Paul of course, on some occasions Paul was terribly abused because of the way that the gospel was making Inroads into the community or into a region. But that was not the case here, he was actually vindicated. And so that's where we pick up today. After the uproar ceased, that was the uproar, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Hold on to that phrase, departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Um, Sopater, the Berean, the son of pherus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Um, it's not always easy when you are studying the book of Acts, reading through the book of Acts, to recognize where one section of the book begins and another ends. Uh, we've already seen this. when. Paul was on that second missionary journey. It was difficult to see exactly where the first missionary journey may have ended and the second missionary journey begins. Sometimes it's difficult to see where the second missionary journey ends and where the third missionary journey begins. Part of that is due to the fact that Luke is not necessarily concerned with the same things that we are concerned with. Uh, Because we know that the book of Acts is a history of the early church, we want everything sort of laid out for us in chronological order. Now, that's not to say that Luke doesn't do that, but he's not concerned with pinpointing specific moments in the same way that we are. And so you'll notice that sometimes transitions blend together. And this is a great example of that, uh, where we begin this chapter today. What is really happening here is one section of Paul's life in ministry is closing, and a whole new section at the beginning of Acts chapter 20 is starting. Uh, Up to this point, what we have seen Paul do pretty much on the first two missionary journeys is he has been an itinerant evangelist going out and establishing churches and, and building those churches up. When you get to Acts chapter 20, what you're going to see is that Paul is now heading toward Jerusalem. He's going to be heading toward Jerusalem, and what he does is he does one final sweep of the missionary field, so to speak but he's not necessarily planning churches. Now I'm not saying that he gave up planning churches altogether, uh, there's some tradition that holds that even after Paul was taken to Rome, he was released on that particular occasion, went off to Spain and established churches there and so forth, but as far as the book of Acts is concerned, Paul is headed toward Jerusalem and he will eventually make his way to Rome as a prisoner having appealed to Caesar and that's where the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. So Acts chapter 20 really is a transition. It's no longer Paul going out, at least according to Acts, and planning churches. It is Paul going back through areas where he'd already established churches and strengthening the believers. Now we saw a little bit of this when Paul finished his first missionary journey. You'll recall that he had gone through the area of Galatia, establishing churches in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and in Derbe. And then he and Barnabas, his traveling companion, went back and reported to the church in Antioch. And then they were called to Jerusalem for that first church council where they were dealing with the whole issue of Gentile circumcision and whether Gentiles could be included in the life of the church as Gentiles or whether they had to become Jews first. you Remember that whole story, very important point in the life of the early church. Afterward, we're told that Paul and Barnabas decided that they were going to go back on a second missionary journey through the areas where they had already been strengthening the believers. So Paul was not just an evangelist. Paul was, in many respects, a discipler. It wasn't like that he just wanted to go out and preach the gospel and people made a commitment like they were at a a Billy Graham revival and, and then that was the end of it. No, Paul was very concerned for their continued growth in the life of the church and so oftentimes he would appoint elders there, people that he recognized had a maturity or a level of leadership. And then he would establish them there and encourage them to strengthen the believers. But from time to time, Paul would go back through these regions, teaching, checking on the churches. He would write letters to these churches. He was a disciple as well as an evangelist. That's what we see him doing here at the beginning of Acts chapter 20. He is going to set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, this is mentioned in the book of Acts, but we find it more in the epistles. One of the things that Paul was doing at this point in his ministry was he was collecting money. It became known as the Jerusalem Fund. I think Paul had been deeply impressed by what he had experienced at that church in Antioch of Syria, Uh, the church that is described in Acts chapter 13, that church that really sparked the missionary era. That was the first time we said that the church was proactive in sharing the faith. Up to that point, they'd been reactive. But in Acts chapter 13, they're no longer waiting for opportunities to come to them. They are out there seeking opportunities. We're told that the Holy Spirit spoke to them in the context of worship and said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. We're told they laid hands on them and sent them off. And that was really the beginning of the missionary era. And we took a look at that church in Antioch. What kind of a church changes the world like that? And we looked at that church, and we said it was a remarkable church. And one of the things that made it so remarkable was that it was such a mixture of people. The ancient world was a deeply divided society. Now, I know, we look at America today, and we see a divided country. You've, you've got those on one side of the aisle and those on the other side. You've got the Republicans and the Democrats, and we see this great gap between you know the, the younger generation and the older generation. And and we see differences in economy, the haves and the have-nots, and we see all of this, but let me tell you, it is nothing compared to the way the ancient world was. Jews did not like Gentiles. Gentiles did not like Jews, and even within those groups, those divisions, there were smaller divisions. The Greeks didn't like the Romans. They looked at the Romans as sort of copycatters. Uh, people that went out and, you know, they, uh, they, were, they were very efficient, but they weren't very artistic. The Romans had a tendency to look at the Greeks as has-beens. <laughs> Your best days are behind you, Rome's best days are before it. And so there was this great division that existed: division between blacks and whites, people of high estate and low estate, Jews and Gentiles, you name it. And yet, what was remarkable was that in that church in Antioch, all of those divisions seemed to have ceased. We took a look at the leaders of the church in Antioch, and we noticed that there were Jews working alongside Gentiles. There were blacks working alongside whites. There were people of high estate working along people of low estate. Whatever the dividing walls of hostility, and that's the way Paul describes it in his epistle to the Ephesians, whatever the hostility walls had been, those walls that people had erected, they had come tumbling down, and people in that church at least recognized that what united them was far greater than anything that divided them. What united them? the person of Jesus Christ, absolutely. And I think that made a deep imprint on Paul. And he knew that if he could show that sort of thing on an even grander scale to the world, that would be a powerful witness. And so Paul had been collecting what was known as the Jerusalem Fund, monies from Gentile churches that he was going to take to Jerusalem and give to the saints there in Jerusalem. Uh, The church in Jerusalem was a leaguer church, these were poor people. They were really suffering. Uh, they were afflicted not only by the Roman authorities, but also by the Jews. Uh, they were going to be you know, thrown out of the synagogues and so forth. And so the, the church in Jerusalem was a very poor church, and what Paul was doing was collecting money from these Gentile churches. He was going to take it to Jerusalem. Uh, these Jewish Christians were very you know, skeptical about the Gentile believers, and Paul was going to present this money to them. This was part of his strategy and say, hey, this is from your brothers and your sisters. And they would say, brothers and sisters, where? Paul would have said, oh, well, in Galatia and in Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and all that. We never knew we had brothers and sisters. Oh, yes. Whatever divides you, what unites you is far greater. So that was part of Paul's strategy. That's what he was doing at this point in the book of Acts. Well, at any rate, Paul leaves Ephesus after two years there. And he goes off on this final tour. He decided he's going to go back through Macedonia, and he's going to strengthen the churches there. And then eventually he was going to sail for Syria, and from Syria he would travel on to Jerusalem where he would present this fund. So that's the context. That's the background. The book of Acts doesn't tell us this, but if you read through Paul's epistles, it becomes very much uh, a point that Paul was concerned for one other thing at this point he was very much concerned for one of the churches that he had established, a church that was having grave difficulties, a church that would, in many respects, be Paul's problem child. If he was their father in God, they were his problem child. You know, some parents have lots of children, and there's always one that's just more difficult or more worrisome than the others. And if that was the case for Paul, That problem child for him would have been Corinth, the church in Corinth. Now we've talked about Corinth. Next to Ephesus, Paul spent more time in Corinth than any other place, about a year and a half. What was going on in Corinth? Well, Paul had established a church there because we said it was strategically located. Remember, Paul was always thinking, what's the best way to get the gospel out to as many people as possible? He began to focus almost exclusively on the major metropolitan areas. Corinth was very, very important, located on that narrow isthmus of land between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south. And it separated the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas. So all trade, all commerce, going north to south, east to west, and vice versa, had to go through Corinth. And so Paul wanted to establish a Christian presence there, and he'd gone into this city. Now, when we studied Corinth, we said, if you want to know what Corinth was like in the first century, think of three Cs. Corinth begins with a C, think of three Cs. What are they? Commercial. Great commercial ports, location. Cosmopolitan. Great mixture. All kinds of people went and came. And corrupt. There was a great temple there. Temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love where they said at one point, over 10,000 cultic prostitutes plied their trade. Now, combine cultic prostitution and a seaport, and what do you get? You get trouble right here in River City. That's what you get, and that is exactly what happened. So Corinth was a very corrupt place, but Paul went there. He spent a lot of time. He was encouraged by the Holy Spirit that the Lord had many people in that place. And so Paul had managed, by the grace of God, to establish a church there. And when he left it, it was growing. But at some point during his time in Ephesus, those two years that he was in Ephesus, he received word that Corinth, the church in Corinth, was in trouble. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's response to these problems, it becomes very apparent that these were not minor issues at all. What were the problems at the church in Corinth? Well, the first thing was that there were factions in the church in Corinth. Paul heard about them. There were some people that said, oh, well, we're the followers of Paul. So you need to listen to what we have to say. You could just imagine a vestry meeting. They're sort of gathered around and they're arguing. And somebody doesn't like when another person says, well, I, that's what Paul said. But then another faction arose and they said, well, I don't care what Paul said. We follow Peter. And here's what Peter said. And somebody else said, I don't care what Paul or Peter said. We follow Apollos. You know, that can happen. Oh, yeah, I like Jeff Miller, the rector. I I like the way he does things. That's the seat of power. That's that's where you want to be. I know, I like Brian McGreevy. You know, he's a C.S. Lewis scholar. He knows everything there is about... I think he knew C.S. Lewis, as a matter of fact. (laughs) And, and, and they're cl- No, Andrew O'Dell's the guy, he, he's the sweet one of the bunch, you know, we want Andrew O'Dell, and Ryan, well, Ryan's the cute one, I mean, and, and, and factions arise, you see, in the life of the church, and people gravitate toward the people that they want, and then in Corinth you had all of these factions, and then there were the super spiritual ones, you know, those people, well, you follow Paul, you follow Peter, you follow Paul, we follow Jesus, you know, that, well, you know, he trumps everybody, you see. That's, that's what was happening. And so these factions existed in the church, and the church was divided. And as a consequence, their witness was lessened. So that was one of the problems that existed there in the church in Corinth. Another problem was gross immorality, which shouldn't surprise us. I mean, these people had established a Christian presence there. Paul had established a church in Corinth. But Corinth hadn't completely repented. At least the city hadn't. These people, these believers, were living in a very secular and pagan environment, not unlike the world in which we live today. And there was tremendous pressure after Paul left for them to conform, to fall back into their own practices. Let me tell you, simply because a small church had been established in Corinth, that did not mean that people stopped going to the temple. That did not mean that the sailors who'd been a long time at sea, when they landed at the port, decided that, oh, they were going to go to the church. I'm going to prayer meeting today. Where are you going? I'm going to the temple. You see, none of that had changed. And so what Paul heard was that there were people falling back into immoral practices. In fact, he said there was actually someone in the life of the church, evidently a prominent person, who had taken up with his father's wife. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily a reference to any kind of incestuous relationship. The fact that Paul describes it as his father's wife suggests that this was probably a stepmother. But Paul says, whatever it was, it was an abomination. My goodness, he said, that sort of thing does not take place among the pagans. And here you are, believers, doing this sort of thing. He said, you ought not to be proud, you ought to be ashamed. He talks about a disrespect for Holy Communion. He said, you are disrespecting the Lord's Supper. To such a degree, he said, that some of you have become sick and some of you are dying. Which I think tells us that, at the very least, Holy Communion is not just a barren, naked sign. We don't do it just in memory. But there is something else to it. You don't get sick and die from a barren, naked sign. That much is very clear. And so Paul says, you're disrespecting Holy Communion. And that's why many of you have become sick. And some of you have even died. And then he says this, and he says, there are lawsuits among believers. He said, believers are taking each other to court and they're suing one another. He said, why don't you take it before the church and let the church decide? He said, surely you've got people in the church that can decide these kinds of issues. He said, it would be better for you if you were defrauded than to take a brother to court. Now I hear a couple of groans and Moans out there. That hits a little close to home, doesn't it? Well, this is why I said I want to take a little bit of an excursion today, because I want to deal with that subject. You can't talk about the church in Corinth and catalog all of its problems and then gloss over it as though the church today has none of the same issues. So we're going to take a look at this whole subject of lawsuits among believers and whether or not we should just be defrauded in the process. Well, Before we get there, let me just sort of wrap up this section. Um, Paul had decided to meet with the man that he had left there as sort of the leader in the church, um, Titus. Uh, He was supposed to meet Titus at Troas, and what really alarmed him was that he discovered that Titus didn't show up, which made Paul all the more anxious about the church in Corinth. Evidently, the leadership didn't feel they could even peel away to meet with the apostle because the situation was so bad. But while Paul was en route to Corinth through the area of Macedonia, he received word that the problems there had been resolved. Evidently, Titus had stepped in. He'd exercised godly leadership. We're told that the church had repented. They had disciplined those wayward brothers. And by the way, church discipline is not a bad thing. The scripture says love is discipline. and Sometimes it is necessary. I would go so far as to say that if many of the mainline Protestant denominations had disciplined, in love, its wayward members, none of us would be in the situation that we're in today. But there was a failure to do so. Well, there was not a failure on this particular occasion. and That's why Paul wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth from Macedonia. The first one was written from Ephesus, second one from Macedonia, and in that second letter he actually encourages them. He praises them for repenting, getting back on the straight and narrow way, And the second letter to the church in Corinth is very different from the first. It is a letter of encouragement. We're told that Paul therefore stayed in Macedonia for a time and then traveled on down to Corinth and he wintered there before passing through Troas en route to Jerusalem. So we see that this is sort of a shift here in the book of Acts. And we'll pick up there at Acts chapter 20, verse 7 next week. But today... We're going to take a little bit of an excursion. And we'll go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, if I get through the excursion. If not, um, then we'll finish it up next week. So let's just turn, if you will, today to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now let's discuss this whole issue of lawsuits among believers because if we're going to be a people, a biblical people, who live under the authority of God, we can't be picky and choosy. Uh, we can't pick those parts that are Attractive to us, that are palatable to us, and ignore those parts that are not as welcome. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what Paul says in that letter. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous Instead of the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Well, that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Very powerful, and it can make us squirm a little bit. It can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Well, before we actually dive into this issue itself, I think we need to lay some ground rules. We need to talk a little bit about the fine art of biblical interpretation. While I think that the message of the gospel itself is relatively simple, not simplistic, because the implications are profound, but while the message of the gospel is simple, that I think that even sometimes children can understand the message of the gospel, that you and I are sinners and that Christ Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that there's new life in him who was died and resurrected. While I think that they can understand the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, the reality is other parts of the faith can be somewhat tricky. And so it's helpful for us to understand that there is a proper and an improper way to read the scriptures. And so before we even begin to look at this specific issue, I wanna talk a little bit about the fine art of hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. And I'm not going to go real in depth on this, but i want to lay out some ground rules. When you begin to read through the scripture, how many, let me just ask this question first of all, how many of you have ever gone through the scriptures and have found portions of them difficult to understand? I'm astonished by that. And this may be true not only in terms of the Old Testament, which is a somewhat foreign environment for us, but it's oftentimes true in the New Testament as well. There are things that Jesus says. There are things that Paul said. Jesus oftentimes taught in parables, and even the disciples didn't understand quite what he meant. So how are we to be a people of the Word and understand what the Scripture is trying to convey to us so that we can live under it? Well, here are some principles for good interpretation. You may want to jot them down. The first is this. You need to remember, first and foremost, the Bible is no mere answer book. That's not what this book was written to do. In other words, this is not like the teacher's edition. You know? Everybody gets a textbook, but the teacher gets a textbook, and in the back are all the answers. And that's what many people do. I'm struggling with lust today. So I'll go to the index, I'll look up lust, and read this passage, and that'll solve my problem for me. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the Bible is designed to do. The Bible is a living word. We said that Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship. God wants to speak to us, and in speaking through to us, bring us into fellowship with Him, and by virtue of that relationship and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, He wants to change us to conform us evermore into the image of his Son. It's a much more organic thing. So understand the Bible is not simply an answer book. It's not to say that it doesn't have answers. It's simply to say it is no mere answer book. Along with that, I want you to remember that the Bible doesn't answer every specific moral question. It just does not. There are questions that arise today as a result of living in a post-Christian, post-modern, 21st century, Western American society that just didn't arise in a first century Jewish or even Greco-Roman context. So don't think that you're going to find the answer in the Bible to every specific moral or ethical problem that arises in the world today. What the Bible does give us, however, are principles, Principles, that if we take them seriously, can be applied to every specific moral or ethical question that arises in our day and age. You understand the distinction between that? Not a specific answer, but principles that can be applied broadly to specific moral and ethical questions. Here's the second thing. Context. It is a great danger to lift any passage of Scripture out of its context and try to build a whole theology or worldview around it. There's a great danger in that. You know you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. If you take something that somebody says, but you take it out of context, you twist it, you can distort it. My goodness, Washington does this all the time. They're masters at it. It's it's the art of duplicity. Context is important. A great example of this is in the first letter to the Corinthians, where Paul says, let your women be silent in church. And all God's people say, amen. (laughs) Really? Really? Let let me tell you something. If I said all the women at St. Philip's must be silent, I'd have to close up shop because they do a lion's share of the work around here. And furthermore, we notice that Paul refers to Priscilla and Aquila as what? Leaders in the church. And he even goes so far as to say that Priscilla and Aquila helped to evangelize Apollos. Well, she's going to have a pretty hard time evangelizing if she has to keep silent. So clearly we're dealing with a matter of what? Context. Context. And this is especially true when we're dealing with the epistles. Why? Because Paul was writing these letters as action grams. They were letters written to specific churches with specific problems. And we have to keep that in mind. The principles that Paul brings to bear apply to all of us, no matter where we are, but he is oftentimes dealing with specific problems. We may not have a man sleeping with his stepmother at St. Philip's. I pray not. So Paul is addressing a specific matter, but the principle applies to every church, to St. Philip's as well as to the church in Corinth. So context is very important. Here's the third principle for proper interpretation. We must remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. All right? Context is important, but it's not just the historical context. It is the context of God's word as a whole. So it's not just what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he's addressing a specific problem in that specific church. It is what Paul says on that same subject, whatever it may be, throughout his writings. And not just what Paul says, but what Jesus says. And not just what Jesus says, but what the Old Testament says as well. So you have to bring the whole of the witness of Scripture to bear on the problem. The Book of Common Prayer makes this point very clear. In Article 20 of the 39 articles on page 871 in the Book of Common Prayer, we read these words. They're good words for us as believers. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. All right, The church cannot act in any way that is contrary to what God's word says. But then it goes on to say, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. That's exactly what those factions were doing. Well, I know what Peter says, but here's what Paul said. And the prayer book is very clear. No, 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 no. The church can't do anything contrary to God's word, and it can't interpret one portion of Scripture as though it were repugnant to another. Sometimes people will say, oh, I know what Paul said, but what did Jesus say? Well, if Paul said it, Jesus said the same thing. And vice versa. So you have to remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Bring the whole witness of God's word to bear on the problem, not just one particular passage. Fourth thing is this the bible guards against oftentimes guards against what i regard as the extremes that is to say the yeast of the sadducées which we might call liberalism today but also the yeast of the pharisees which we might call legalism today you notice that jesus did not get along with the pharisees but ironically he didn't get along with the sadducées either A great illustration of this is, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, He said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. I tell you, not one jot nor one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all is fulfilled. The law is the law, and I'm here to uphold it, not to destroy it. Well, the law said you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And yet, we're told that oftentimes Jesus was criticized for doing what? Healing on the Sabbath. And how did Jesus respond to that? He responded by saying, well, which one of you, if your child or your ox falls into a ditch, says, well, I'll just leave them there until the Sabbath is over. See, Jesus guarded against the license on the one hand, legalism on the other. So we have to bring these principles of interpretation to bear on any question. That's the art of good interpretation. So let me give you a specific example before we get to the whole issue of lawsuits. Okay. This one is going to hit even closer to home than the lawsuits. It's the issue of marriage and divorce. I want to take a look at how Jesus deals with that, how the scripture deals with that. So if you will, turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple, doesn't it? And if you lift that whole passage out of Scripture and you build a whole theology and worldview around it or an ethic around it, a lot of people are going to be in a lot of trouble. Now, maybe that should be the case. But you have to ask yourself, all right, if that's what Jesus said and if if that's what he says everywhere and if it's not an issue of context, okay. But is that everything that Jesus says about the matter? And how is he and why is he addressing the subject as he is? Jesus' message seems very straightforward. The only grounds for divorce, according to Matthew chapter 5, the only ground, as he says, is what? Well, adultery. It's interesting that you say adultery. Unfaithfulness. The Greek word, now, some of you can't read the Greek. Any Greek scholars in there? Ryan, what is that word? Pornea. Well, thank you. There's a Greek scholar right there. exactly right. It's the Greek word porneia from which we get the term pornography. It does not mean specifically adultery. There was actually another word for adultery. This meant specifically fornication. And in the New Testament, it is a reference to all sexual behavior, all sexual behavior outside the context of marriage. So just for the sake of clarity. But what Jesus appears to be saying is that the only grounds for a divorce is some sort of sexual activity outside the bonds or outside the context of marriage. And more specifically, it seems to be a kind of sexual activity that would bring into question the legitimacy of the marriage, which, which even strengthens Jesus' position even more. In other words, if you marry somebody and you discover that they were already married to somebody else, that would be the grounds for a divorce. (laughs) It's not even adultery that Jesus is referring to here. It's much more specific than that. And so that, that seems to be very specific. But of course, that leaves unresolved a great many questions that people have. If those are the only grounds for divorce, what about a woman who's abused by her husband? What about domestic abuse? A woman that is, is beaten within an inch of her life, or, or God forbid, a man that is taking advantage of his children in some sort of terrible way. Uh, uh, is Jesus saying that their only grounds for divorce is adultery or fornication, that, 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 that this woman is expected to stay there and take that beating, perhaps even be killed by her husband? Is that what we're talking about? What about a spouse who's involved in illegal activity? who's putting the family at risk? Is that woman, according to what Jesus said, obligated to remain in that marriage no matter what? How many of you have ever wondered about that sort of thing in the light of this kind of a statement? Those are good questions. They are legitimate questions. They are not necessarily questions that Jesus was addressing, however. And that's why context, you see, is very important. And that's why we need to take a look at some of the other things that Jesus says. It's not as simple as it first appears. It never is, ladies and gentlemen, when you're dealing with people. Now, we can make it simplistic and simply say it, well, that's it. That's what God says. That's all there is to it. What does that do? Well, it makes some people feel very righteous and very good. It makes other people feel very wretched and miserable. And what do we say? The Bible tries to guard against those two extremes. So, let's take a look at the context. The issue in Jesus' day. Jesus speaks of this subject in Matthew chapter 5. He also speaks of it in Matthew chapter 19. So we need to bring Matthew chapter 19 into play as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It's very tricky the way they do this. What do they do? They pull out scripture. They said, you said you didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. Well, Moses said, in fact, Moses commanded, they said, for a man to, if he wanted to divorce his wife, send her a letter of divorce and send her on her way, send her packing. Jesus replied, He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, such is the case. If a man and his wife, it is better if he doesn't marry. (laughs) Maybe so, who knows? What was the context here? Here's the context. Here's what was happening. The debate, as we can see here, was over a passage from Deuteronomy, in which Moses does say that a man, if he's going to divorce his wife, should write her a letter of divorce and send her on her way. You can read the passage from Deuteronomy yourself, we'll run out of time, but those first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24 make the point very clear. In Jesus' day, there was a great debate between the liberal point of view and the conservative point of view. The liberals were the followers of a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And basically they said that Moses allowed for divorce. And the question was, what were the grounds for divorce? Well, Hillel said, any grounds the husband wanted. If your wife burns your dinner and you're mad about it, divorce her. If she doesn't grow old gracefully and you don't like the way she looks anymore, divorce her. Over and against that was the conservative view, and that is the view of the Rabbi Shammai. And his view was, no, the only way that you can do it is on the grounds of adultery, period. Those are the only grounds. And so these two views come before Jesus to test him, knowing that no matter how he answers the question what, he's going to be making somebody upset. Somebody's not going to be happy with the response. That's the sort of thing that they did. That's why it says they came to test him. I want you to notice there's an assumption on the part of both parties here. What's the assumption? Divorce is what God intended from the beginning. God created man and woman, married them, but when he married them or set them together, he provided an escape valve. Now, they're assuming that divorce is what God allowed, is what God intended, if it didn't work out. The only question was, what were the grounds for it? You see the problem? How does Jesus respond? First thing he says is, Moses never commanded it in the first place. Look at the text again. Look at what they said. Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? It was not a command. Moses never said, I command you to divorce your wife. Moses allowed it, but he didn't command it. And Jesus makes it very clear he allowed it. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, Moses was a realist. He recognized that God had a standard. He also recognized that people sin and fall short of the standard. So what was he doing? He was not commanding divorce, he was trying to regulate it, knowing that it was going to happen. Jesus said this was not part of God's original plan. His original plan was lifelong union of a man and a woman as one flesh. T. Wright had a great illustration of this. He said, just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life, not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive a car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, when you drive, take care not to have an accident, but if tragically an accident occurs, this is how you are to deal with it. You see the difference there? See, the assumption was we're entitled to divorce. Jesus said, you're missing the point. So the Lord doesn't give us a pat answer, but what he does give us are some guiding principles. Remember what I said? Not not pat answers about domestic abuse or or pat answers about if a, a spouse is doing something illegal does is he gives us principles that we need to apply to specific problems. And let's take a look at the guiding principles. First of all, he says we need to recognize, all of us, on this specific issue of marriage and divorce, that God's original plan did not involve divorce. That's not what God intended. God intended that a husband and a wife should live together in holy matrimony till death they do part. That's what God intended. However, Jesus acknowledges that sin occurs, and divorce, because sin occurs, will occur. But it's always tragic. It's always tragic. It should always be a last resort, and there should always be repentance and forgiveness. But here's the final point. Rather than Shammai and Hillel looking for reasons to get out of the marriage, Jesus' point is that we should always be looking for reasons to what? Stay in the marriage. Jesus acknowledges that in a fallen and broken world, sometimes divorce will occur, but it's always tragic. It is not what God intended, and Moses set those rules up to regulate when tragedy occurs, not to encourage it. I see that's a way of upholding the biblical standard, isn't it? But acknowledging the fact that people sin and there's grace, there's mercy, there's pardon, and there's forgiveness. And that stands far over and against the Pharisees on the one hand with all their legalism, turn or burn. Or the Sadducees over here on the other hand, well, just live and let live. See how you take those biblical principles and you apply them to a specific issue. No pat answers, but when you bring the whole weight of the Bible to bear on it, all of a sudden you begin to say, I see, I can see a way through this morass. Well, in the next ten minutes, let's apply these biblical principles to our specific issue. Lawsuits. Go back now to 1 Corinthians. Let me just read the passage again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church?" I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? I want you to notice a number of things that Paul acknowledges here. First of all, he acknowledges that disputes will arise between believers, doesn't he? You know, sometimes we think that the church is just going to be all salt and light. Everybody's going to get along. It's just so wonderful. And we're so surprised when the church is filled with hypocrites. And we can't understand why they're all hypocrites. Isn't that the way it is? Yeah. One of my favorite stories about Charles Haddon Spurgeon was that one day he had preached a sermon and. And he was standing in a receiving line at the end and all these people were coming through and and this one couple came up and they said, Mr. Spurgeon, we have so enjoyed your teaching, so enjoyed your preaching, but we have discovered that there are hypocrites in your congregation. And therefore, we are going off in search of a better church. And he says, well, will you do me a favor when you find this better church? And they said, yes. He said, don't join it. And they said, well, why not? He said, because if you join this perfect church, you'll ruin it. In other words, if you find that the congregation is filled with hypocrites, you are in good company. Because aren't we all? How did Martin Luther describe the church? As a hospital for sinners. That's what the church is. It's a hospital for sinners a place where those who are broken and fallen may come and find healing. So Paul acknowledges that disputes among believers do occur. Christians will disagree. Whenever I'm doing premarital counseling and a couple has been dating for two years and they come in, they say, I say, well, tell me about your first fight. Oh, we never fight. You've never had a fight. Oh, I can't marry you. Uh, You don't know each other well enough. Um, That's the problem there. So Paul acknowledges that disputes among believers do occur. He next acknowledges that when they occur, believers should seek judgment. Sometimes they can't reconcile or resolve the problem on their own. They should seek judgment. But they should seek it where? From the church. From the church. That's what he says. He said, dare you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? How much more than matters pertaining? So if such cases arise, why do you not lay them before the church? Why should we lay these matters before the church for a decision rather than before a secular court? Paul, I think, would give us a number of reasons. First of all, because the church has a different standard. As Christians, we walk to the beat of a different drum. And we're seeking to please who? Please God, not please ourselves. And if our aim is to please God, then certainly the church is the better standard by which to judge these disputes. He also goes on to say, the church might as well get used to judging these matters because one day, he said, we're going to sit in judgment as believers. We'll actually sit in judgment of the angels. Did you know that? Those of you, I said this on Sunday, those of you who think that when you go to heaven, the only thing you're going to do is have a life of leisure, sitting around on clouds, plucking harps. I've got news for you. You're in for a big surprise. God has work for you to do. Part of that will be to judge. To judge. He goes on to say Christians suing Christians is also an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. It brings disrepute upon the life of the church. It damages the witness. And finally he says might it not be better to be defrauded? Now those are the things that Paul acknowledges. But as with marriage, what about domestic abuse? What about a man that sexually abuses his children? What about all those issues? There are outstanding questions here. What about lawsuits with unbelievers? Paul doesn't seem to address that, does he? He said believers shouldn't sue believers. Well, what about unbelievers? Doesn't address that issue. Well, the church is supposed to judge. But what if the church, its leadership, refuses to get involved in the dispute? Then what happens? What if the church that is going to pass the judgment, has become corrupted. Paul's operating under the assumption that what? This church is going to live under the authority of what? God's word, but what if the church no longer lives under the authority of God? What then? See, there are lots of unanswered questions. So let's bring some other biblical insights. Scripture interprets scripture. Let's bring some other scriptures to bear On the issue. First of all, you might get the impression from reading just from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the secular courts are a bad thing. But actually, elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul himself acknowledges that the secular authorities are established by God. And in Romans, he actually says that they are God's agents to restrain sin and evil. That's how he describes the secular courts. It says the secular courts exist at the pleasure of God and their purpose is to what? To administer justice and to restrain sin and evil. It's interesting to note that when Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate, who was a judge, and Pontius Pilate said to him, won't you say something? Do you not realize that I have authority either to release you or to condemn you? Remember that scene? It's interesting to note what Jesus said. What did he say? He didn't say, you don't have any authority over me. As my youngest son likes to say to his older brother and sister, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say that, does he? What does Jesus say? He said, you would have no authority unless it were given to you from above. So Jesus himself acknowledges that Pontius Pilate has authority, but it is a God-given authority. So understand, secular courts are not a bad thing. The scripture is very clear. They are a necessary thing. Here's something else. Paul, on several occasions in the New Testament, appealed to the secular authorities and the secular courts. We see that at least three times in the book of Acts. We see that in Philippi. We also see it in Jerusalem. And we see it at Caesarea Maritima when he's standing trial before two Roman governors. He says, I appeal to Caesar, which is my right as a Roman citizen. And that's the reason Paul ended up in Rome. Did you know that? It's because he appealed to Caesar and he went there as a prisoner. That was his right. Isn't it interesting? Paul appealed to the Roman authorities. So already, as we begin to bring the whole of Scripture to bear on our specific issues, we realize that the secular courts are not a bad thing. They are appointed and they exist by God. it's not to say that sometimes they're not corrupted. But they do exist by God's pleasure. And the second thing is we notice that Paul oftentimes did appeal to them. And the case in Philippi is particularly interesting. We're told, remember, that Paul was arrested because Philippi was a very Roman city. Remember that? Settled by former soldiers of the Roman army when we looked at Philippi in the book of Acts. And Paul was imprisoned there because he was accused of... Pro- claiming or advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to practice. Now, that wasn't true. It was a false accusation, but that's what happened. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. You know the story. God intervened. There was a great earthquake. Their chains fell off. The lights went off. The doors flew open. In came the jailer, ready to kill himself, pull his sword. Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the man comes trembling before Paul, and he asks that very direct question, what must I do to be saved? And I think it's so to Paul's credit that he gave the direct answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What a wonderful passage. And then what happens? We're told the man took him home, dressed Paul's wounds, and the next day they stood trial before the officials. And they discovered that Paul was a what? A Roman citizen. And so they decide to let him go. But how did they go? Did Paul go quietly on that occasion? Did Paul willingly suffer being defrauded? No, we're told Paul stood up to them and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I am not going quietly. You have abused me, a Roman citizen, and you've abused my companion, a Roman citizen. We are not going quietly. You will escort us, a police escort, out of town. That's exactly what they got. Now, you have to ask yourself, why did Paul do that? If it would have been better for him to be defrauded, and in many places, it's interesting to note, in many places, Paul did go quietly. When he was abused in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra, where they actually stoned him, he didn't go before the Roman officials and say, I've been mistreated, and I deserve better treatment, and something needs to be done about this injustice. He didn't. He went quietly. But on this particular occasion, he didn't. Why? Now, if you recall our study several weeks back, you remember why. Paul wasn't defending his own personal right. He was defending the safety of the church. This was a Roman city. These were former Roman soldiers. Many of them had been converted to the faith. If Paul went quietly, what they had done to him, they would do to these new believers, and they would stamp out the Christian presence. And so while Paul was not trying to in any way vindicate himself, he was doing his best to protect the church that was left behind. And so he appealed to the secular authorities. How does this mesh with the Diocese of South Carolina versus the Episcopal Church in South Carolina and the Episcopal Church? Well, I think we need to remember what the issues were. The original issues, and they should still be the original issues, were biblical issues. Biblical issues. The person and work of Jesus Christ, the authority of the Bible. In fact, I don't know if you saw, but it was in the newspaper today. You can Google it now. What happened in the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, D.C.? They voted overwhelmingly to adopt gender-neutral language for everything, including gender-neutral language for the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is no longer a man. Now, whether or not you want to talk about the theology of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the reality is Jesus, as an historical figure, was a man. But in this brave new world of transgenderism and all of that sort of thing, what they have done is they have voted to change that. Well, as Bishop Salmon used to say, you can vote on the sex of a rabbit, but it doesn't change the sex of the rabbit. <laughs> but that's the world in which we're living, you see. So we need to understand that the original issues were biblical issues. They had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus has the only way. They had to do with what is the locus of authority for the life of the church. Second thing is this. We did take the dispute to the church. We took it before the Anglican Communion and the Anglican Communion became so divided that it fractured over it. The third largest body in Christendom fractured over this issue, ladies and gentlemen, and refused to take any disciplinary action, at least any binding disciplinary action. What are we defending here? We are not trying to defend or just keep property. What we are really trying to defend is the gospel and the gospel assets. You know, people ask me, well do you worry about what's going to happen to you and to your family? I'm going to be honest with you, not much. Now, I'm a provider and of course I'm concerned about my family. I don't know where we're going to live if if, if things go south and all of that. And that's a possibility, folks. Let's just face it. I don't know. But that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is when I walk into St. Philip's Church, as I did last night for for the Wednesday service, and there were 80, 90 people there. Or on Sunday morning, we have glorious music. It's a majestic building. People are drawn to it. And you put some power in the pulpit and people's lives are changed and things are happening. I'm excited about that. And the prospect of somebody getting up there and preaching some weak, pusillanimous gospel, which is no gospel at all. Yeah, that turns me inside out. So what are we fighting for? We're not fighting for bricks, mortar, and stone. Of course God dwells in the people, but we are fighting for assets that are used to promote his gospel and to build his kingdom, so that those who believe another way, which is not the gospel, might not gain control of them. We are not attempting to take anything from tech. We are not suing them for anything. We're not trying to take anything from the congregations that stayed with the Episcopal Church. They were never in danger of losing their property. So this is not about personal rights. This is about the gospel. That's why Paul did what he did in Philippi. It was about the gospel, not about Paul and his own reputation. It was about the gospel. And yes, we have gone to the secular courts, but we have gone to the secular courts, why? As a last resort. Because the church, the Anglican Communion, failed in its biblical responsibility so that we had no choice. It's a sad day when believers recognize that they might get a better, fair hearing for Caesar than before those who claim to be believers. Now you say, well, now that's not really fair. Well, Paul makes it very clear in 2 Timothy chapter three that the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine but surround themselves with teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. He said they will have the form of religion all of the vestments and traditions and all of that, but they will deny its power. What are we supposed to do? Paul says, have nothing to do with them. So that's where we are. And we are there because I think there's no other place for us to be. And do I know how this is going to come out? I do not. And I'm not gonna give you any false hope. I'm not gonna give you any false assurances. What I'm going to tell you is we will fight the good fight because it's the fight worth fighting. And faithfulness always bears a price. And whether we win or whether we lose, we need to recognize that we're not perfect. We, even we, have somehow contributed to this terrible situation that the Episcopal Church finds itself in. And whatever sin there is in our corporate or individual lives, we need to repent of that. Seek God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And humble ourselves under his mighty hand. I think that's how you live biblically. Is it simple? No but God's word does give us direction. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in difficult times, as indeed Paul did, and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is not merely an answer book. You are not interested in just making us people who do the right things for all the wrong reasons. You want to transform us ever more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the book. The only way that we can rightly divide your word and apply these principles to every situation is if we are a people who read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. So Lord, make us a people of the book, make us a people of your word, grant that we may humble ourselves under its authority, that we may be a light in a dark place. For We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Okay, back to Acts next week.